0: So welcome to episode fifty. This time around, hopefully it works. Just now I saw that Trisha's camera was working. So today I'm delighted to have Dr. Trisha Yo from Ideas Malaysia. She's the CEO of the Malaysian NGO that works on democracy, democratic advancement, and economic development in Malaysia. Okay, thank you so much, Trisha, for being here. So so let's start. Uh, I think the question on everyone's mind is. Who do you think will be the Prime Minister of Malaysia?
1: Who do I think will be the Prime Minister of Malaysia? Um, okay, well, first of all, thank you, Walid, again for having me today and uh, really apologize for all the technical difficulties no of problem. earlier. It's my first time doing an Instagram Live. Uh, I had problems with my phone settings and so on. Um, well, Prime Minister, so let's kind of broaden out a little bit, right, to the GE15 We are talking about the most hotly contested election um, in, you know, I can't even remember the last time that there was such a close fight. Um, This is an election where there is going to be a really um, unpredictable outcome because of various factors. Number one, we are looking at a very large number of new voters whose vote we have never really tracked and traced in the past, 5.8 to 6 million new voters. Uh, We're also looking at an election that has uh, possibly a very low voter turnout um, because of various factors combined, Um, COVID, the floods, the rainfall has been really heavy uh, all across the country. Already some parts are affected by the flood. Um, And of course, the factor which I think we need to spend more time unpacking is the fact that there are all these multiple coalitions and how the coalitions are going to negotiate after the election itself Is really anyone's guess um, How you know, the, the particular equations are going to be formed uh, So going back to the question of who is going to be the Prime Minister I mean ultimately it's about which coalition it is That will be the closest to the winning margin So uh, for those who are uninitiated we have 222 parliamentary seats. Uh, so therefore, a simple majority would ensure any party that has 112 seats and beyond a simple majority in parliament. And in the past, we always would have one of the coalitions being able to go past that simple majority mark. And it was very simple. and It was very clear um, that the leader of that particular party or that particular coalition would therefore from the government, and therefore the leader would be the Prime Minister. But it's not so simple now. Um, I think what we're looking at is that no no one coalition will actually win a majority. And in such situations, these coalitions will probably have to negotiate with each other um, to form a coalition government. Uh, And so that's one, meaning that you come together to get the seats to cross that middle mark. And secondly, they would also need to come to terms and negotiate on which prime minister it is that they want. So I believe that the kind of prime ministerial candidate that is up for negotiation from each of the coalitions, each of the coalitions will offer you know, one to two, uh, that will also be actually a point of negotiation. Um, meaning that if there is oh, you, another you don't party think or exactly another coalition no. that cannot agree on that particular... Uh, coalition's offering as a prime ministerial candidate, then it could possibly be that um, that the 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 coalition itself cannot be formed. So there cannot be an understanding or an agreement between them. Um, so it really is tricky, right? You can't just say that, okay, in the past you have Barisan National, this is the prime minister's candidate. Pakatan Harapan, this is the prime minister's candidate. Uh, now I would say that even the prime minister candidate uh, is something that will be a point of negotiation.
0: Right, yeah. so you think that is true even for PN and PH? Mm. So that, that's, that's true for Barisan, right? Likely because Zahid uh, yes, seems right. like he... But what about Pakatan Harapan and yeah. Perikatan So Okay, so I
1: think if you want to talk about like actual names, um, you have like five possible <laughs> names who would be up for being Prime Minister. So you have Anwar Ibrahim, who would be the Prime Minister if Pakatan Harapan wins or it can negotiate with another coalition. You have uh, Mahathir, uh, Dr. Mahathir, who is now leading Perjuang. You have Muhidin who is leading Bersatu uh, under Perikatan National. And then you have the two from Barisan National, right? Uh, Ismail Sabri and Zahid. Uh, so bear in mind that all these five individuals have either been Prime Ministers or Deputy Prime Ministers in the past uh, so obviously there is that yearning for coming back right into some form <laughs> or shape of, of power um, so I think we have these five individuals and these are the five names that have been touted however, I think that one really needs to be uh, circumspect and, and be prepared for any other possible likelihoods as well so for example um, you know I think no one's really raised this question at least publicly. I mean, maybe I haven't followed every conversation yet, but Ismail Sabri's seat is actually very uh, very thin, uh, marginal seat. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, his last uh, the the seat where he's contesting the the majority vote was quite slim, at about 2,000. And um, Zahid Hamidi's seat is uh, a bigger majority, but uh, he has actually also proven to become rather an unpopular figure of late. And many of the surveys right. are showing that he uh, is, is you know, declining in popularity. Is, is You're talking possible? about
0: Zahid, right? Not Ismail, right? You're talking about Zahid.
1: Sorry? Uh, can you repeat you,
0: that? You're talking about Zahid, right? Not Ismail?
1: No, I, I talked about both Ismail and Zahid. So I, I oh, both that of Ismail them you think are uh,
0: becoming is... unpopular?
1: Uh, Zahid. Zahid becoming Zahid, right, unpopular. Right, yeah, right, Zahid right, becoming okay, unpopular. Right. Uh, not
0: Ismail. Right. Okay. Yeah. So what what so, about what about for Pakatan Harapan? Is Anwar Ibrahim in any danger? So let's say Pakatan wins but Anwar, uh, Anwar doesn't win his seat. Is that a possibility at all? Um I think
1: that's so you're asking two questions, right? So one yeah. is like if Pakatan wins, so of course yeah. we don't know.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: I think at the moment the projections still put them at about eighty to ninety seats at most. Uh, that's like in a very lightly. That's in a very very like positive scenario for Pakatan Harapan. Uh, there have been some figures that were thrown about about Pakatan actually winning more than a hundred seats, but I don't think that's possible. I think if you look yeah. at the projections, there are very very secure like fifty-five seats, and then between fifty-five and eighty to ninety, like that's you know possible, but that's also positive. Uh, but going to the question of whether Anwar himself could potentially lose, I mean I think the fact that he's um, going to a pretty risky place in Pera, um, which has always been a tricky state because it has swung both sides in the past. Right. It's gone from uh, one, one coalition to the other uh, in, in multiple number of years and elections. So the seat that he's contesting, Tambun, is not necessarily a secure seat for him. Uh, I think it would be, um, it, it, he he will also be up against the incumbent, uh, who is currently the caretaker minister of youth and sports. And uh, th- there will be, you know, other candidates as well. So I think just a short answer to your question is that, is there a chance that he doesn't win? Yes, there is a chance that he doesn't win as well. Um, so these five names that I've just put out, I think it's really important to uh, consider the likelihood of, none of the five that have been oh, wow. speculated as the next prime minister to actually be even close to being in the running, uh, which therefore leaves us with other names. Um, and right. we know that there are other names which perhaps are not in the front line, but the sort of second in line, for instance, um, there is Tokman, uh, who is from Amno and he's been given a very safe seat in Rumbao, which was Kari Jamaluddin's uh, former seat, which he had to give up. Uh, so if that is to happen uh that's another name that I think you know people
0: should not forget either. Wow. So what about on the PH side do you think there is another name? I'm looking for a scoop today, you know. So is there anything that uh, <laughs> <laughs> anything that you know uh from the insider's perspective or what you have heard on the grapevine?
1: Oh, um You mean any other possibility of a Prime Minister candidate coming from PH?
0: Because because some people have talked about uh, the Anwar being moved to Tambun. It's kind of a strange move. And is that because of internal politicking? And is that because people within Pakatan and PKR especially are a bit tired of him? And it's a move to get rid of him. And therefore, is there somebody else waiting? Is that a possible Prime ministerial candidate from PH?
1: I mean, I think what you're trying to get me to say is to bring up the possible Rafizi factor. Um, (laughs) I didn't
0: mention him, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so I think I will say as much as this, right? I will say that Rafizi coming back in the fray is a good thing. I think it gives some extra energy and life and rejuvenation to the party, which really sorely needs it. Um, I think as far as the sort of Disagreements and tensions that exist between him and Anwar I mean look, every party has people who agree and disagree with each other I'm sure that somewhere along the way they still needed to align uh, between themselves as far as the strategy is concerned Um, Anwar's decision to go to Tambun in Perak should not be, I don't think, seen as a sort of sacrificial position If anything, it was really, if I understand correctly, um, and this has been an opposition strategy from before as well, where they take, you know, uh, secure names, uh, popular big names, and put them in states that they really want to contest and win over. So they did this in Johor when they tried to get Johor uh, back or not, not back, but actually like win over Johor as a state in 2018 and they won, right? Like they actually took the entire state government as well. I mean, yes, it fell later on during the Sheraton move. um, But the fact is that, um, that they have tried very hard to make that their strategy. So going in, in a very concerted manner to a particular state that may actually be hostile in, this, in the case of Perak, it's not an entirely hostile state. I mean, DAP does have a, a pretty strong, stronghold in Perak. Yeah. I think they have some DAP stalwarts there um, in the form of people like Nga Uh These are you know people who have been in Perak for a long, long time. So DAP right. does have uh, a foothold there. But like I said, it's been a swing state. So I think they really wanted to. And also bear in mind that Perak is only one. Uh, I mean, it's one of the three states that will be Contested in this election Whereas the other states Will be waiting for next year So if it's any of the states That Pakatan really wants to go in This time it would be Perak uh, But I must right. say that The kind of national conversation And narrative about Perak Has died down quite a lot In the last week uh, In light of other contests Taking place in uh, What you know the media believes To be more hotly contested seats, Such as in Kuala Selangor and Sungai Bulo.
0: Right, right, exactly. So, uh, I mean, Lim Kit also moved right to to Johor, and that was that was uh, part of the strategy that you were talking about. So, so let's let's talk a little about Anwar Ibrahim, right? So, uh, I think any in any other country, right, if a leader has consistently failed to win uh, in multiple elections, that person wouldn't be the leader of the opposition anymore, right? Uh, I mean, in UK, one election, you do not win, or maximum two elections, you're out as the leader of the opposition, right? So, but Anwar has a very long shelf life, right? Uh, Why is that? And do you think that actually harms the opposition? Just as much as the presence of people like Zahid and the guard harms Barisan National, does the presence of the old guard in Pakatan Harapan, specifically Anwar, uh, does it harm the opposition? You think?
1: Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the question is about renewal and rejuvenation within the party, right? Um, in any other country, yeah, I think it's it's. It, you're right that uh, so for example in this election, Anwar were to lose his seat in Tambun, if there are certain key parliamentary seats in the stronghold of the opposition, such as within Selangor or even Penang, that are lost uh, by Pakatan, then, and the standing of Pakatan therefore falls, then I think um, it is really time in fact, it's past time, according to some people, that um, there needs to be that sense of leadership renewal from within Pakatan Harapan. Um, so, your question about equating the old guard within Barisan AMNO and the and Anwar Ibrahim in Pakatan, like whether that's right. the same equivalence, right? Can we draw an equivalence there um, for for Barisan and AMNO? Uh, I think that it's not just about the old guard in Amno, I think it's also about what they represent, right? So if the old guard um, of any party represents a kind of culture that is unwilling to accept new ways of bringing up young blood within the party, then I would say uh, they do need to think about stepping aside uh, however, there also can be, you know, members of the old guard. I mean, I, I don't want to be ageist here as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if yeah. you're a member of the old guard who actually believes that yes, there should be renewal and makes way for that, and yeah. really takes active steps to ensure that young people are recruited, are given the right opportunities to not just join but, um, you know, climb up the ranks, then I think. That's probably less of a problem. And I think what why, so an additional problem about why people think about old guard in AMNU as problematic is because um, many of them are associated with old cultural, political, patronage practices uh, of within AMNU, uh, including some of whom, you know, being involved actively in the 1MDB related cases. Uh, So, I think those things are probably conflated in people's minds. But I think it's a right thing to be able to unpack them, right? Like, why actually, what's the reason that we are not supportive of the old guard? If the old guard can make way and are actively encouraging others to do so, I don't see any reason why, you know, they should step aside necessarily. So, that that question would apply to any party. I mean, I would say the same thing for Pratatan Harapan as well. Uh, But, I mean, whatever it is, Young leaders do need to rise. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, right. this election result okay. will also tell us the direction to which, yeah, the party needs to take.
0: Right. So, just just one final one on this particular point. So, you think that if Pakatan Harapan doesn't manage to form a simple majority, either by a coalition or whatever it is, ANWAR should step aside, but do you think that will happen? I don't see a universe in which he willingly steps aside, right?
1: Um, yeah, I think this is a problem of, of uh, I think it's not just you know, Malaysia I think many Southeast Asian or Asian <laughs> countries for that matter and not just restricted to pol- to political parties mind you That's this is true. also That's something true. that applies to non-profit organizations, organizations yes, uh, exactly. charities exactly. alike yeah. um succession planning is just not done very well just because we like our leaders we like our hierarchies you know we actually pay um allegiance and we we we, we give credence right to, to, the, to the leaders and um the age old ones as well um Will he step aside? I think he um, has. Not, I think the answer to that is that he has not like cultivated sufficient uh, leaders who are able to immediately take over the reins. Um, and many people have also fallen away, right? So unfortunately, over the years of the whole Reformacy movement within Parti Keadilan itself. Um, there have been many opportunities to create, you know, new leaders or new new presidents in waiting, uh, so to speak. Yeah, again, in an Asian society, I think the leader at the very top needs to make that decision, and uh, it's only his that can be made. Meaning that he steps aside so that the younger the younger ones and the younger blood can come up. I mean, in in Parti itself. There are scores of younger leaders. So you're talking about right. leaders in their 30s, uh, 40s, who have come up through the Reform Master years and over the last 20 years, right? Starting from 2008. So there is a stock of leadership there. Um, but what's lacking would be the leaders in between. So you actually have a gap uh, between the likes and the generation of Anwar Ibrahim and then the, the generation in their 30s and 40s. Um, And can Malaysians accept a leader who is, you know, age forty plus? Um, Possibly not yet, but maybe that's something that we need to change the mentality of as well.
0: Right, right. I mean, Rishi Sunak is forty-three, and uh, the the problem you mentioned, right? I think both the uh, the main all the mainstream parties are beset with this, right? This legacy politics. So you have. Ishamuddin Hussein, Najib Tunraza, Nurul Iza Anwar, uh, Lim Guan Eng, right? So do you think that's, that's not uh, is that is that a non-issue? Because if you're good enough, it doesn't matter what your family background is? Or do you think you will inherit a lot of these issues as well that uh, your parents may have had and uh, it's not healthy ultimately for Malaysian politics? Um...
1: I think legacy politics is all around the world. Uh, I don't think it's exceptional to us. I mean, we might, in Asia, might seem to be more apparent, um, you know, definitely in countries like India, Pakistan, uh, Southeast Asia alike, this happens, right? Um, I mean, it happens in in Singapore too, so what more in in a Malaysian culture and society that's like a lot more hierarchical as I talked about earlier and it also happens in other countries, right? Um, sons, uh, leaders and of presidents. In Southeast Asia is quite notorious for that, right? So you mm-hmm. just think about, you know, Bong Marcos, Um, think about about Indonesia as well.
0: Megawati. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, Megawati. So, is it a good or a bad thing? Um, I think it's Really, up to each candidate to be able to prove their worth. Um, as voters, we should not support a candidate just on the back of that person being part of a famous family. Um, you know, tried, true, and tested. I think we need to be able to make those judgments for ourselves. And uh, so, okay, let's take. Let's take Malaysia and Nurul Iza, for example. Uh, I think she is somebody who actually has proved her worth. Um, some people yeah. are not entirely satisfied with her performance as a member of parliament, but she's someone who is able to stand her ground, right? I mean, she can speak to an international audience. She has delivered uh, you know, addresses at very, very high-level, United Nations-type Places. she's also able to interact with uh, people on the ground in the kampong. Uh she has you know good policy ideas she's launched something on uh, the multi-dimensional index on poverty um, and I think sometimes the pressures that we place on daughters and sons of politicians is is quite high and in in Isa's case I think she actually did try very much to Separate her identity very clearly From that of her father's And um, In her case, I would say that she is Quite deserving uh, to be a leader In her own right Um, So yeah, I think There's no right or wrong answer to this I I think the question is um, Given that It is such a phenomenon In Asia uh, How do we Make the most of it Uh, how, How do how do voters actually try to make sense more independently of each candidate's potential and worth? Uh, Would they be able to um, come up with good policy ideas? Will they engage on policy debates, the ones that matter to us? Um, Will they declare their assets? Will they also, okay, this one would be interesting, right? Like, would they be able to take positions that diametrically also oppose their parents, their fathers uh, on the right things? Uh, So I think that would be like a true test. Uh, And, you know, um, there's some comments here about some of the people who are, you know, being set out these elections. Um, We don't know what the internal decisions have been within the party. um, But yeah, I think if that, that that particular reference is is to DAP, um, I think that the party has, of course, <laughs> legacy issues as well. You know, yeah, you mentioned yeah. that, Lim, Lim Kitsian, Lim Guan Eng. Um, but the good thing is that they've also given way to somebody else, right, to be the Secretary right. General. And I think he's also been able to make some decisions which are, uh slightly different. Uh you, you may consider them to be like subtle differences. Um, but I think the types of people who are now in that party, um, also in AMNO. So let's also talk about, you know, re so, so this theme of renewal, uh, you know, versus legacy. Um I think AMNO as a party is also very interesting. I mean I think that they're also going through their own, you know, whatever transformation out of necessity process uh, following 2018 yeah you, you don't you don't yeah. lose an election without having to ask yourself uh, some really hard questions and looking at themselves in the mirror um, yeah. and and from, from what I have also heard that there were a lot of challenging usul like usul would be kind of questions that come from the ground from the jabang from the from the Chawangan, right? The branches, yeah.
0: uh, the, the branches. What
1: do you call that in English now? Branch? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the party branches, right? So the party branches themselves have also placed pressure upwards to the leadership. And so, uh, you know, when that happens, then parties may also need to think about uh, renewal from the top if, it, if the pressures are coming from the bottom. So I think this generation of politicians is really interesting um, to look at you know, the newer politicians um, who may not be stuck in their old ways from the past, they might be more willing to engage. Um, you know, the the term of the day, you know, is bipartisanship um, or multi, multi-partisanship. Uh, it's also the thing that got the MOU across the table, uh, some of the bills, the anti-hopping law, the UNDI 18, uh, lowering of the voting age to 18. I mean, some of these things would never have happened were there not a bipartisan approach. And so the younger leadership, I think, is much more open to this than the older uh, guard. And I think the pressures are coming from all around, right? Top, bottom, you know, left, right, center. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Right. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, I I, I think that was a comprehensive answer. And I I agree with you. I think each candidate should be judged by their own merits. Nurul Eza is an outstanding uh, candidate for sure. And I just wanted to ask about Pakatan Harapan. And do you think that uh, the parties in the coalition, right, so PKR, DAP, not so much Amana because it is new, but still uh, it's a splinter party from past. Do you think they all took a hit in their credibility in when they decided to make uh, Dr. Mahathir the the prime ministerial candidate. Uh, And it seemed to me that uh, all along, I mean, PKR was essentially uh, a party founded on justice against Dr. Mahathir, right? And the AP has had uh, a lot of issues with Dr. Mahathir before. So it it seems like they lost the moral ground uh, when they decided to do that. And they showed that, oh, politics is ultimately about expediency and And no party should be talking about morality, it seems to me. Would you say that's a fair Mm. assessment?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one. Um, Okay, look, all parties exist to be in a position of power. Um, Only in highly exceptional cases would the party exist for platforming purposes, right? To raise and champion issues. And you could say that for Very few parties in Malaysia, such as Parti Socialist Malaysia, uh, to a certain extent, Parti Rakyat Malaysia, which is all but non-existent. Um, Parti Socialist Malaysia has been able to stay on for so long because of only one individual, right? Dr. Jayakumar, uh, who has done an excellent job in doing groundwork, community work. Uh, He's provided a lot of medical provisions to his people. Um, But ideologically speaking, it's not a party that All Malaysians can accept. It's a very niche uh, party, not a catch-all party at all. Um, So with that exception being the case, all parties are in there. They are contesting because they want to be in power. I would add that in a country as centralized, um, like Malaysia, in a political system like Malaysia, where all um, the the losers lose all, or rather it's a winner-takes-all kind of system, Uh, the stakes are even higher because the way that resources are distributed, the way money is allocated, um, constituency development funds, for example, are only uh, rewarded in equal amounts if you are a party aligned with the government. If you're an opposition party, then you don't actually get those resources um, on an equal share. So it's really uh, not a very level playing field at all uh, in Malaysia, where, like I said, the winner really takes all the loser also loses all. So with that caveat aside, um, why would any party decide on a strategy that does not provide them the highest winning odds? Uh, I think that really is the question, right? But yes, I agree that uh, parties also need to decide what is the limit because voters will also make their decisions based on the sort of moral compass that they purport to adhere to. Um, so I think in Ka'Adilan's case or in Pakatan Harapan, Harapan's case, um, what happened in the, in the lead up to 2018, so if you're talking about 2018 as the decision, right? So you're saying that there was a possible compromise in allowing Mahathir to be the Prime Minister, right? That's what you're saying. Right. You have to remember that in the two years leading up to 2018, There were a lot of incidents that took place in which Mahathir actually demonstrated um, a level of, I mean, yeah, you say that, you know, people don't change and especially someone who is a 90 year old man, um, how is it possible that he actually would have changed his colours after so many years of playing the game? But in the few years leading up to 2018, he managed to garner a lot of public support, um, he attended Bersih five. Uh, he had a lot of uh, public support. He was, he, he, um, you know, he even before the formation of his party Bersatu, he already came up with this sort of like document together with civil society um, that talked about reforms and the institutional reforms that are needed to address the issue of corruption in Malaysia. Uh, he worked closely with some of the major civil society leaders in the country to do that. Uh, so, what I'm saying is that he was already warming, and society, some members of society were already warming to him. Uh, in fact, it was probably, you know, Patika Adilan and Anwar that was among the last of these reformist types who were willing to eventually accept him right. uh, as genuine. Uh, by right. that time, you know Mahate was clever enough, strategic enough, wily enough. Perhaps you might you might argue uh, to be able to win people over. Uh, so by the time that he was eventually selected as the prime minister candidate, I think it was uh, a compromise. Yes, it was a compromise, but it was a compromise not entirely based on the figurehead of of the Mahathir who had imprisoned you know, many people under operasi lalang. I think it was um, it was a different kind of mahatir that at least the Pakatan and the supporters of Pakatan had um, included into their fray and accepted uh, as one of their own. And also because, remember again, it was centralized around the big issue of 1MDB, right? 2018 election was all about 1MDB. They joined forces to fight that. Um, and so I think we have to just remember the context within which many of these things took place. Um, of course, what happened consequently and his you know, his his decision or inability to think of handing over the reins to anybody else, that I think singularly was his downfall. Um, but apart from that, I, I actually um, don't see it directly as a break in the sort of ideals of Pakatan because mahate had you know whatever you might want to think perhaps it was disingenuous, ingenuous um but he had sufficiently convinced enough people that he too was a reformist uh so that was the context right yeah
0: um was he? Did he convince people he was a reformist, or what? Did he convince people? Which and I think he was genuine, as in, in terms of his opposition to Najib and against one MDB. But he is—he has always been upfront about being a Malay nationalist, right? So, and that seems so. So my point is—is is that right? The the ideological differences, uh, and some ideological differences, are, uh, uh reconcilable and others are not. Right? And it seems to me what DAP and PKR stood for are, were definitely not reconcilable with what Mahadeh stood for uh, as as a person. And did Mahadeh change? I don't think Mahadeh changed, right? I mean, one could say that it was DAP and PKR that momentarily made that decision or they momentarily changed in when they, they decided to, to have him as a prime ministerial candidate.
1: Yeah, so you're right. I think not enough um discussion was done over the the ideological position of inclusiveness and um the the the, the discussion at the time was really about corruption, of institutional right. reforms. Um there was very little discussion about you know the ethno religious question right. of Malaysia's makeup. In fact, You know, when Bersatu was formed I think, yes, there were some criticisms About why Bersatu was formed As such a Malay-Muslim-centric Or Malay-Solitary Malay-Muslim party Um, But there was not real conversation About the discrepancies in ideology Between Bersatu and PKRDAP uh, Because the conversation at that time Was about 1MDB and about corruption And I think it was felt that that was a priority at that moment, Um, even after 2018, right, like if you see the first 100 days, the kind of things that Pakatan came up with, they launched their National Anti-Corruption Plan, NACP, very ambitious, actually very, very good document uh, until today, Um, but they never really quite addressed the issue of of, uh, ethno-religious ideology, and I think that was probably... The, the stumbling block, that was the Achilles heel of Pakatan Harapan because um, very uh, short several months after, if you recall, there was this big um, anti-ISERD rally that took yeah. place on the streets of KL, possibly even exactly. bigger than any of the birthday rallies that took place yeah. prior. Um, and, and yes, one could say that that was at the agitation of Amno uh, and PAS combined. Because remember Anwar and Pas also joined forces to form Muafakat National after 2018, um, and that probably spelled the downfall. So not enough time, not enough uh, consideration was was spent on really deliberating these issues out, and which is a real pity, right? Because uh, you're right. I mean, this is something that Anwar himself has championed all this time, but I think it just goes to show you um, how many. Issues and challenges continue to yeah. to face, you know, that, that Malaysia continues to face all of these things because as a society, we have not really even been able to um, segregate and uh, be able to rationally discuss these and come to an agreement of what is the kind of social fabric we want uh, for the country moving forward. I mean, we, we try to do that at Ideas and we try to, simulate these dialogues uh, between different communities and there are vast differences between the way people want to see their future uh, Malaysia uh, but we need to be able to create even more safe spaces to have these discussions because the failure of having these safe spaces would result in what you see where very easily one party or one race is pitted against the other and that's not, that's not healthy uh, for the long run of any society, especially a country that is so you know, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, uh, deeply integrated uh, as ours. So I really do hope that whichever new government is formed, we would be able to have those conversations in a real way and uh, you know, really address even some of the sore points and some of the real grievances that communities have Um, because we just cannot sweep things under the rug anymore. We need to be able to talk about them rationally. um, And uh, I think that compromises can be found, and compromise itself should not be considered a dirty word. I think in a country that is polarized, that has very, very many multiple uh, fault lines, um, it's okay to negotiate, and it's okay to... Yeah, it it it's it's, it's okay necessary. to compromise. Yeah. It's not it's not as if you're giving up your ideals. Your ideals Absolutely. still exist, but how? the real The real question is, how are you going to live in a common society in the same space with people who have like completely opposing views to yours? Like that's the real right. question. Can that happen?
0: Right. Absolutely. 100 uh, percent agree. So so and on on that note, right? So do you think racial politics or the politics of race? that will be the ultimate determinant in this election? It wasn't in 2018? Do you think it will be this time round?
1: Um, I think the politics of race, I think, again, like people sort of set that aside a little bit in 2018 because 1MBB yeah. was the issue, but not entirely, right? Because Correct. Uh, also, you know, they said that if, if Mahathir wasn't around in um and if Bersatu wasn't around as part of the coalition in PH in 2018, then PH would never have won, right? They would never have formed federal government in the first place. Yeah. Um, racial politics, yes, to a certain extent. I think it's here to stay. Um, it will be... You cannot avoid it. Um, the paintbrush of race is everywhere. In Malaysia, it colors everything. It colors the way all political parties are campaigning how they're doing their strategizing, their messaging, uh, their analysis even. Um, but I think that's not enough. So I think any, you know, more, more sophisticated, like, analyst has to take that into consideration, but it's not the and all and be-all factor. Because if it were, then what accounts for the differences in, in the ways in which voters are choosing between uh, Barisan National, Perikata National, right. and Perjuang, right? right, right. Um, you have like three very Malay Muslim parties. All of them stand for Malay Muslim unity. Um, they are all, you know, rather conservative to a certain extent. Um, and there are very clear differences in the way that voters are going to choose for these three different parties, and so I think being able to separate between the preferences here is very difficult. Though I mean, uh, right. it requires like uh, a, a more layered understanding of Malay society, which I think right. is also a good thing because
0: right. Malay
1: society cannot be viewed as being homogeneous either. Uh, I think sometimes there's an assumption, uh, especially from non-Malays, right, to just say, okay, you know, who are the Malay voters? Like, what do the Malay voters want? No, the Malay voters are as human as any of us. We right. have multiple preferences. Um, and and we, I, I think, you know, researchers also need to be able to appreciate the subtle differences between the different communities and be able to segment them according to the more psychographic uh, ways, you know, ways in which that companies and marketers have done for time immemorial, um, and then we'll really be able to understand like what is the pulse and the, the heart and the beating heart um, of, of the Malay community. That's urban, rural. I mean, it's not just urban, rural, but it's about languages. Um, and don't forget like urbanization plus media, um, exposure to different culture. I think this is also transforming the way in which we, we are um, thinking and, and voting uh, in the present and future.
0: There's a question here by Chun Hao. So is it possible for race-based politics to transform into class-based politics in the future? I mean, it's not an either-or, of course, but more of class-based rather than race-based politics. Do you think it's possible? In the near future, at least? Yeah, I think
1: we we do need to think about class. Um... That's unavoidable. I mean, so most of the surveys and the opinion polls that you see will sort of use like urban and rural as a sort of proxy for class. I mean, that's not actually very accurate, but it is a proxy uh, in a way. And so yes, analysts will also look at you know what's the difference between the urban and the rural vote, uh, assuming that the rural vote you know requires a set that there's a certain set of needs from among the rural vote uh, versus versus uh, among the urban vote. Um, but, um, I mean, we, we need to be able to like, do cross-cutting analysis, right? So it's about race, it's about class, uh, it's about, it's about um, you know, like I, I use this term psychographic, it's what the marketing people use because it segments not just by, by so age as well, right? Um, age, and then also language. So it's not just enough to talk about race, but it's about what language they speak. Um, So in the commercial world, for example, they will find that the English-speaking Malays and the English-speaking Chinese within a certain geographic region actually share a lot more in common with each other than, for example, the uh, malay speaking Malay and the English-speaking Malay or the Chinese-speaking Chinese and the English-speaking Chinese. Um, So all that to say that, for example, like myself, who I would consider myself an English-speaking Chinese. I don't speak Chinese per se. Uh, I have a lot more in common in my voting trends, my voting patterns would be much more similar to my colleague who's English-speaking Malay uh, compared to a, a Chinese-speaking Chinese. So I think it's true that race analysis can be uh, rather sweeping, um, and it doesn't give you that layered like approach. So language is important. Language, race, class... Um, uh, not just class but like you know specifically income levels a level of education age uh, all these are multiple factors that like one would need to consider so i think people do tend to be quite superficial when we just talk about race as a single factor
0: right thank you so much so just two more questions if you could indulge me right so one do you think young voters will turn up
1: Um yeah. it's really hard to tell. Um if you look at the Johor and Malacca state elections, the young voters did not really turn up to vote. Um and then of course people also used Malacca and Johor as a trajectory uh, like use that as a tradition to to an an extension to how they analyze the GE, but that's not accurate either, right? Because um, GE is very different from state elections. Um it's really hard to say. I mean, honestly, we, we just don't know. Um, if you look at, there was a poll that was done by uh, ICS, ICS Singapore, Institute of Southeast Asian Studies. I think there was a, vote, uh, a poll specifically done on young voters. And uh, in that survey, quite interestingly, uh, this was done by James Chai. Um, it showed that most young voters actually believe that it is their responsibility to vote, which is really interesting. Um, uh, You know, the the common thing that people would say is that they're not educated enough, uh, we haven't done enough political education in schools and in public, um, but the response seemed to be, well, I mean, it was a welcome surprise to know that young people actually do uh, take it upon themselves and that uh, they do see that their role is important uh, to vote. Um, in the Klang Valley, I mean, again, this is just based on anecdotal evidence. I do believe that most young voters, uh, will turn up to vote. They may not actually know who to vote for yet. Right. So I think the initial polls also showed that as high as 33% of, uh, first time voters still did not know who to vote for, um, but the fact that they will vote, I think that's a positive sign. Uh, for the rest of Malaysia outside of the Klang Valley, I really don't know. Like, I don't have an answer to that question, um, whether or not they will turn out to vote. But uh, whatever it is, the voter turnout in this 2022 election will be much lower than the 2018 election just because of the sheer size and number of new voters coming in. So I think we shouldn't be surprised if we have like, you know, a 75% voter turnout, I think we should be happy with that already,
0: yeah. Right, so and a lower voter turnout would benefit PN and BN more than it does PH, right?
1: Yeah, I think uh, assuming that the trends hold uh, from the the last day elections and also the trends from previous elections, assuming those trends hold, uh, yes, a low voter turnout tends to benefit the incumbent, which in this case would be like PN slash BN.
0: Right. Okay. So any predictions, Trisha?
1: <laughs> uh, predictions, are, I think uh, if there are, you know, if people have heard this far into the session, <laughs> it would, they would kind of know what, what I'm trying to say, which is that uh, no single coalition is going to win. Uh, they will have to negotiate with each other. Uh, if I had to stick my neck out to make a prediction, Um, I would say that it would still be in the form of some BN plus PN plus GPS in Sarawak plus uh, GRS in Sabah, and that would be a possible outcome um, to see. And if if it's not that, then the other uh, best case scenario would be that it would be another form of an MOU government, the way that we have seen under Ismail Sabri. So uh, Ismail Sabri successfully managed to manoeuvre this MOU where the opposition supported it, but they did not want to call themselves as being part of the coalition government. So I think that's another possible outcome as well. Um, If they are not able to form a majority with the coalitions that have
0: traditionally cooperated with bn right okay so no prime minister uh, no ibrahim again so one just one one final question let's move into fantasy world right if you could choose one person to be the prime minister of malaysia right so uh, from any party uh, forget about the electoral politics but just one person who would you want it to be and why one one person one person
1: to what to to be the Prime Minister?
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: okay. Uh you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> um who, who so so regardless of like, you know, party regardless, coalition. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um let me think about it. <laughs> well, obviously I've been so like I've indulged myself so much in political analysis that I, I've not uh, indulged my own, my own personal right. uh, opinions, um, the right prime minister for Malaysia should be the prime minister who doesn't want it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think if you look at the past, right, like, uh, I think Dr. Ismail was famously, he famously called himself a reluctant politician and. They are the ones who actually serve the nation best um, because they were not self-serving. Uh, so honestly, I don't have an answer to that question, uh, but I will. I will say this: um, I think that whichever prime minister we do have needs to learn from previous prime ministers. Um, you know, ideas itself is formed on the back of the vision of Tunku Abdul Rahman and I know Tunku Abdul Rahman as the first Prime Minister of Malaysia had his own faults as well but there's just so much to learn from the kind of service and humility that he provided to the nation when the nation was just in its fledgling stage. Um, So much humility and sacrifice given and I think those sorts of values have been lost over time. just because of the way the system has shaped itself out to be uh, political corruption, patronage, and so on, have really exacerbated over time. So I hope that, yeah, I think, you know, it would, in my mind, if you were to ask me, it would be like the restoration of some sort of person uh, who had a similar value system, the likes of the tungku. And I think that, you know, would, would be what I would leave you with. Sorry, I don't okay. have the answer that
0: you wanted. <laughs> That's a very eloquent cop-out, but I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> but thank you so much. <laughs> that, was, that was really a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. So many insights. And I really wish you thank and, you. and thank Malaysia you for having me, all Malik. the best. No, thank you. Thank you for being here. Okay, goodbye.